2: I'm all
3: right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, (laughs) Mr. Tom. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good (laughs) question. (laughs) Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pote, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation.
5: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the St. Patrick's Day edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program. This is uh, hour two of our uh, two-hour examination, uh, uh, commentary and analysis on local, state, national uh, politics and current events. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back to you as well. Thank you, sir. And uh, joining us for uh, the St. Patrick's Day edition of Armchair Politics, we have political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. Bobby, welcome back to you as well.
2: Thanks. Happy to be here.
5: Um, we were talking about the Embridge uh, 5... Um, Pipeline and uh, what the alternatives were and so on uh, Toward the end of uh, the first half of uh, armchair politics, but um, Let's uh, let's let's move on to uh, some of the other issues uh, in Lansing the chairman of a key Michigan House Finance Committee told the state budget director on Wednesday He will not meet to discuss doling out billions of dollars in federal COVID-19 relief until Governor Gretchen Whitmer agrees to negotiate with lawmakers on pandemic orders. Representative Thomas Albert, Republican from Lowell, uh, sent the letter in response to a separate letter issued Tuesday by Budget Director Dave Masseron. Masseron asked Albert and Senate Appropriations Chairman Jim Stamos, a Republican from Midland, on Tuesday to meet by the end of the week to discuss allocate, uh, allocating remaining federal funds. In a fiery and at times inaccurate letter, Albert argued the legislature needs to have a greater role in pandemic public policy. Does this kind of negotiation help explain why these legislators should have a greater role in pandemic policy? (laughs) No.
4: Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) It's an unfortunate commentary on on the partisan division of our times, I'm afraid.
2: Yeah. I read that the the attorneys general and several of the Republican-led states are also upset because the um, legislation required that they not use any of the federal money that's being given to state and local governments uh... to reduce taxes in other words they're not allowed to replace their ordinary tax income with the uh, money that's being sent to them and they don't like that
5: Well, Governor Gretchen Whitmer approved measures allocating hundreds of millions in federal COVID-19 relief funds on Tuesday, but used vetoes to nix other provisions, including a bill to take away state pandemic powers that ultimately represent more than $1 billion in federal dollars. Uh, Whitmer called the bill to remove power from the state health department director, a reckless idea, poorly executed and poorly timed but because of legislative maneuvering by the GOP controlled House and Senate the veto at least temporarily imperils more than eight hundred and forty million dollars in education funding the moves come after substantial public fighting between the governor and republican legislators over how best to provide billions in federal uh, in available federal funds that advocates say families and businesses desperately need should this power struggle affect education funding, it or does. any
2: funding at all?
4: It, it does. Again, you would hope not, but I mean, every when when you get into a power struggle, everything is everything is in place. So all kind of things yeah. hurt in that process.
2: You know, but, I used to me. think that I used to think that Richard Nixon was brilliant in uh, when he established revenue sharing as a way of um, taking federal money and allowing state and local governments to apply it where they thought it was needed. But when you look at what's happening at state levels that are holding hostage, the money that's intended for helping the local governments and the people and using it in these political partisan maneuvers, maybe revenue sharing is not such a good idea. Maybe these programs need to be administered by the federal government and money doesn't need to be shoved down at the state level because they are doing that with the vaccines in some ways. Like the, I think the pharmacies are getting the vaccines directly from the government, whereas the health departments are getting them through the state. So mm. this is a question about management. Good point. Yeah. Sorry, I made a good point.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, that's that's true, Bobby.
4: Well, I think Bobby,
5: that's point. why we have you on, so that uh, good points will occasionally <laughs> be made. Uh, so I can be obnoxious. <laughs> Um, Michigan Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirkey has the power to sue Governor Gretchen Whitmer if she allocates federal COVID-19 relief funds provided to the state but not appropriated by the legislature. On a party line vote, the Senate granted uh, Shirky the authority uh, Thursday. In a floor speech, Shirky did not say why this power was needed. A spokesman said the move is a precaution. It's the latest front in the ongoing battle between Whitmer and the Republican-controlled legislature over power and funding that advocates say um, is is desperately needed by families, businesses, and schools. Do you think there will be a suit, or is this just saber-rattling?
6: Probably
4: saber-rattling. Probably, although I mean, filing a lawsuit can be part of the saber rattling process too. Whether it goes through, goes anywhere remains to be seen. But uh, I, yeah, I, that's it's a lot of noise. But sometimes you see when you make a threat, you end up following through in ways you you hadn't quite planned on. Yeah. So. So it's uh again, it's just, it's, I've often asked the question is there anything today that is not breaking down along partisan lines? I mean, you take a look at the whole uh, uh, pandemic issue, so many of these things should have been and could have been nonpartisan issues, but. Things like wearing masks or getting shots or lots of other stuff have become very much partisan issues. Well, I know yeah. that
5: question is kind of rhetorical, Paul, but I would submit that, that this show doesn't break down along party lines. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: think you're right. <laughs> Not really. I, but you know, when you talk about what's going on in Lansing, I I picture sumo wrestlers. You know how they storm and storm around the ring and they storm and they make faces at each other or the or the uh, the Native uh, islanders in New Zealand, you know, yeah. how they make those horrible faces and scream at each other. <laughs> it's like, okay, when are you going to come to grips? <laughs>
1: but, you know, um, how we work in government, or how they, the legislature works and the Congress works, they work by guidelines. and Nobody has the specific resolution to any problems. It's the process that creates the outcome. And we're always making rules as we go for that instant, in such an instant, for a outcome that's a collaborative outcome that ought to be, not a political one, but one is based on collaboration, good sense, fiscal responsibility, and all that stuff. All of that stuff has to be made so that people, in the last analysis, benefit. Not just one person or several people, but just so that the country will remain stable with these kind of modalities. Otherwise, it's always in flux and freefall.
2: Well, it's always in flux anyway. If if you, I listened to uh, the nine o'clock uh, part of today's show and the interview of uh, Sarah Kamali, who wrote mm-hmm. that wonderful book called. Um, home what is it homegrown hatred or something
5: home homegrown um, hate
2: yeah yeah homegrown I hate that too. it was a wonderful interview I really really got a lot out of that but when you asked the question Tom about her ability or her um, willingness to describe the United States as it is because that was the question um, Ideally, it represents all of us, we are all participants, we're all sitting at a table, we all have an interest, we all have a vote, but the reality is not necessarily there. So what Henry's describing is the ideal, yes, the system works and it pumps out justice and it pumps out freedom and it pumps out safety and all of those wonderful things we want for everybody, but is that the reality or is that the ideal?
5: well and that's well, and that's why i always point out
2: for the ideal
5: that's why i always point out you know th- there there are these academic discussions and very often it it comes down to um what it's supposed to be like and what it really is like
4: yeah yeah mm-hmm.
5: and and um I Barack Obama, I know a number of other people have made this point, but I I just happen to remember it from Barack Obama uh, referring to the United States. Uh, I, I think he was being pressed on on race issues, which he always tried to dodge a little bit. But but he he just simply said that, you know, it's a work in progress. You know, we have this vision and we need to continue to keep working toward that vision. And it gets a little better you know, every day, we hope.
4: Yeah, and I th- frankly, I think that's one of the advantages of this. If we, As long as we consider it a work in progress, that may be a real advantage for the countries, for those nations that have thought, thought of themselves as a fixed thing, unchanging, often found that uh, that was a very bad way to run a nation. So, it's, it's, yeah, we are very different today. than I mean, we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, or any other time in the past, and we
1: will be but, in the future. But we don't appreciate it. If you look on the TV, if anybody who would come from space or come from another country and look at this country functioning and see what we see on TV in real life, uh, in examination by driving through the countryside, you would think that this was Mecca or a Garden of Eden. But we, the people who enjoy all of this, don't appreciate it. And uh, that's too bad. And we will, we will strive...
5: So that uh well, yeah, we let me let, let me just comment on that because I remember when uh, Dave Barber um a couple of years before he passed away, uh former radio host and so on in Flint, and he used to come back and visit Flint from time to time, and he drove through his old neighborhood and he was appalled uh, you know he 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 was sick to his stomach from oh, the decay yeah. and the blight and and all of that, and I remember him making those comments and you know, we have to admit that it's a very different experience driving through Bloomfield Hills than driving through, say, the north end of Flint. And absolutely. And and interestingly, I'm I'm going to be talking uh, early tomorrow morning, and it'll play back during the show tomorrow at ten o'clock with uh, somebody from the Institute for Policy Studies who's. Um, testifying today in Washington to the Senate uh, Budget Committee about income inequality, um, which is the main focus of uh, uh, the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington. In fact, their website is um, equality.org. And, and they advocate for changes in, in tax structure and other things that will help level the playing field a little bit. So be sure and tune in because I think she'll have some interesting things to say, not just about what the Institute for Policy Studies stands for and advocates for, but but her read on the Senate from the questions she's asked. It should be... It should be uh, an interesting conversation tomorrow. Um, well, know, I,
2: I'm, I'm not, here.
5: I'm not uh, disputing that there are
1: disparities in wealth, and that's growing all the time. We don't see it, and we don't want to change it. Nobody wants to change. It. I don't. I won't say nobody wants to change it, but well, but um,
5: as a often of happens, some, Henry, I've got to cut you off yes, there because we have Hello, a break. Darling. We'll be this right
2: is back.
5: Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support.
1: Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The
0: Tom Sumner program.com.
5: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. And welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues on this St. Patrick's Day edition of the Tom Sumner program with uh, Bobby Clayton Walton joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. A couple of quick uh, uh, additions from uh, the last segment. Um, this morning the, the guest on the show was Dr. Sara Kamali, and her, uh, her book was called Homegrown Hate why white nationalists and militant Islam, uh, Islamists are waging war against the United States. And another thing that, uh, that I made reference to was uh, my guest for tomorrow um, from the uh, Institute for Policy Studies, who's testifying to uh, a Senate budget committee today. She is uh, IPS's CEO pay expert, Sarah Anderson, and she'll be uh, joining me by phone on the show tomorrow during the uh, 10 o'clock hour if you want to tune in for that um and as much as i have uh tried to watch the clock and and slide in and out of uh breaks without interrupting people i got henry again um thank you. <laughs> I, I, I cut henry off just uh
1: and thank you and I, and I was i was i was making a point here you know you know i and I'm listening to uh, how we feel sorry for all of those people that live on the north end of Flint. So do I. I think it's pathetic. But 50 years ago, we were the, nation, we were the city with the highest income per capita in the world. And, yep. uh, guys, now I was – what I did, I did an investigation and compared the criticism of the north end with the east end over by Franklin in Utah, Nebraska – of uh, Lee Street and all of those uh, communities that uh, bordered along the Flint River. Mm-hmm. And it's worse than the North Side. You know, yeah. it is worse. And this is where whites live. And, uh, and I'm not trying to make a distinction between them, but they are all in the same boat. And, and for people who try to protect one so that they can get their way uh, in formulating some other concocted theory, we need to make sure that we pick up, if we're going to talk about poor people, then talk about poor people, Talk, talk about all of them, because they're all in the same boat. And what generated this culture of decadence in our communities, I don't know. And part of it probably is and 50 years ago, everybody who wanted a job could get one here.
5: And, Henry, you bring, up, job. you bring up a, an interesting point, and I'm glad you made that point about the east side of Flint because, that number one, that's my old stomping grounds. But that's also the part of town I was referring to when I uh, talked about Dave Barber and his reactions to coming yeah. home to Flint. You know,
4: I, I have a friend who had a similar reaction. I don't know if you, anybody knew Bill Johnson, who taught poli Mott and was later mayor of rochester new york among other things he comes back periodically and he's had the same reaction driving around flint having having been here back in the sixties and early seventies and then coming back every now and then but uh, so same reaction both to the east side and to the north and among among other parts of flint too that those two aren't the only places to see the decline but it he's been astonished when he comes back with, with uh, just driving through the city
1: now, yeah. when, when, when new when immigrants come in, they see all of this, those places like that, a Garden of Eden. They will go in and, like, parasites and eat out the rot and rebuild something. But we'll let our people wallow in their body fluids and do nothing
5: Why we, but politic. Why we were... Uh... During the break, I got an email um, that was it was just kind of coincidental um, to a conversation we had a little bit ago on today's show, talking about uh, public Wi-Fi and, and computer access. And interestingly, the press release that I got was talking about Tuscola County, and they are uh, asking... Um, Citizens there, uh, county residents, businesses and other organizations to uh, participate in a survey intended to help expand and improve high speed internet access across the county. so this is something that that is being worked on in different uh, in different places it, it just happened to be um, a coincidence that that I got that press release you know just minutes after we touched on that very subject, so I wanted to share that.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I only to live address, two
5: miles I, from Tuscola County
2: I wanted to address what Henry brought up about um, the decline in Flint I was reading about some of the proposals on um, doing some work on uh, 475 was it to expand a certain portion of it and make it open to commercial development and um, whatnot? and there was right. a book called Demolition Means Progress yes oh yes I bought it. Um, I started reading it. I haven't read it completely, but what I saw what I saw, and what I read about what was happening in Flint, and I'm aware of what happened in Nashville, Tennessee, because I lived there for a few years, and my cousin was the mayor. When they did a massive redo of the downtown area and the area along the river um, and taking some of the old property and turning it into commercial property the old warehouses and turning it into restaurants and i don't know how it's fared now and i also saw what happened in chicago and i've watched what's happening in detroit the cities where people are moving away like in detroit in flint and either moving to the suburbs or moving someplace else to get a job are the ones that are the most in trouble and it's primarily because i did study public management that's my field primarily a management issue but it, it It's all centered in politics, it's centered in the economy, it's centered in management. If you pay attention to what happened with the water issue in Flint, for instance, with so many people moving out and you've got deteriorating houses that are being demolished through HUD grants, Uh, administered by the land grant and you've got a two-block area with only two houses using the public Mm -hmm. water main and the water sits in that water main because there's not enough of it running through what you have is water that's subject to being contaminated by um, any of the bacteria or any of the other things that can settle in the water so the water problem is not just a problem of the water and the water mains and the pipes it's a problem of the residents in the city. It's an overall macro issue. So and, you, well, can't really, you can't really define it as just poverty or just color of people. It's a management problem from the top down.
1: Uh, there are a lot of issues there. There are a lot of them yeah. tied in race and that has been a long time issue. Sometimes we try to... We try to skirt that and, and we try to uh, polish it up We try to defend it, but uh, we all need to know that we're all part of the problem.
4: I think, Henry, uh, race is an issue.
1: The way that we we get rid of that is we converge on the problem without politics, because politics make winners and losers of us. And uh, so I don't ascribe to politics because it makes winners and losers
5: well, uh,
4: as you, t- you take a look at 475, Henry, and that did run along racial lines in some ways. I was going to yes, say, Bobby, do you think there's a case to be made for downsizing the city of Flint? It's yes. Yep.
1: Yes, absolutely. So
4: well, it's I
5: happening, did. but how do you adjust the infrastructure that was built for I mean. a larger yeah, I mean, city?
4: It's, 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 politically, it's a hard sell. And,
5: and it's really tough yeah. to do because those two houses that Bobby describes in a two-block radius... Right. May have been there and well kept for generations, and you know, is eminent domain appropriate to to move those people off their off their property?
4: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Politically, it's very very tough and very painful to do to to do it. Uh, well, logically, I,
5: I I had a couple more things from Lansing that I wanted to get to before I start talking about national stuff. But as the clock ticks on the wall, I'm gonna just combine these very quickly. Um, A new executive directive issued Friday by Governor Gretchen Whitmer um, called the way, uh, called um, the use of separation agreements um, and providing money in exchange for confidentiality. She said uh, her her new executive directive um, is a move. the move is a way to promote transparency and accountability um, and and she says that you know that this is going to continue and that in some ways it, it saves people uh, taxpayer dollars in the long run and the question I was going to ask is paying people off cheaper than being sued and should this be the normal course of business in government but I also wanted to bring up a uh, Detroit Free Press story about the two uh, chambers of the Michigan legislature who spent more than $690,000 on confidential agreements associated with former employees during the last decade and how ironic is this? Yeah
4: (laughs) Yeah. I, saw, I saw that story. It's true. I mean, after yeah. all the complaints about the governor, then this legislature is doing the same thing and more.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's all confidentiality. And then you get back to the ethics question again.
1: And you have to give businesses the, uh, the opportunity to uh, protect itself. At all costs. Well, in businesses, it is the driving vehicle. People are the United States itself. I don't think people are
5: really attacking businesses for this practice. They're talking about whether or not it's appropriate to adapt that that process of, you know, pay, paying people off not to sue you and to keep quiet and you know all of that kind of stuff. Um, is that something that, that the government should adapt?
1: Well, I'm not sure about that, but I want to say this about businesses. But businesses, uh, people can ruin businesses. For example, if you found a cockroach in your sandwich, uh, at dinner time at Bill Knapp's or some other high level food establishment and you lailed that out and you wrote editorials and stuff like that, you would kill the business.
5: Well I like Andy Griffiths' response to that scenario. He said, Hush, the others will want one too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh but but let's move on. I promised we'd talk about Mitch McConnell. Um Senate Minority uh, Leader Mitch McConnell is quietly maneuvering to field a slate of GOP Senate candidates in critical uh, battleground states attempting to avoid a repeat of election cycles a decade ago when candidates emerged from primaries only to implode and deny his party the chance to take back the majority. This time around, the wily Kentucky Republican has a uh, high-spending super PAC, and he's prepared to use it, with 20 GOP seats to defend, including five open seats where Republican senators are retiring, compared with 14 seats that Democrats have to defend. McConnell is making clear he's not taking any chances, and he's signaling he has little regard as to whether GOP prospects are loyal to former President Donald Trump, who himself is beginning to take an active role in Senate GOP primaries. Can Senator McConnell rebuild a Republican Party separate from Donald Trump by backing these uh, candidates? Well, it won't
1: be the, the Republican be- Party. You've got to define the Republican Party as a Trump Party or as the Republican Party. The right. Republican Party by itself is a standing institution that will be here long after Donald Trump is gone, long after Henry Hatter and all of the members of this. So um, if, if, what will happen is either Donald Trump and the Republican Party will be able to work together, or he will form a third party, which is likely and he, that will be independent. Mm -hmm. But it may not bode well for himself, and it may not bode well for the country. I I tend to agree,
4: Henry. I think you may see a third party, either whether it's the Trump party that is a third party or the Republicans are a third party, but I, I can see a split there of some kind
2: yeah okay. I'm reminded again of the similar wrestlers with the storming and the stomping and the yelling
5: <laughs> and the <laughs> and that's and that's kind of within the Republican party or has been and And the question is in this upcoming election cycle how how will senator McConnell's uh candidates do with his backing and uh, um and and the money to to you know to run uh, formidable campaigns?
1: I think McConnell yeah. would really like to see trump come back into the fold.
6: I think really? he would.
1: Even though they, they have their differences now, it looks inseparable, but it's not inseparable. But I think that he, uh, McConnell is a, a, a cagey, wise politician. And he has now, should be, the problem with the filibuster. Should the Democrats move in such a way that to get rid of the filibuster, he will uh, make a move so that uh, the president, vice president of the United States, will have no capacity to vote, that uh, to exercise a vote as a as a uh, as a, a winner for that side.
4: Don't you think McConnell would just like to see Trump just go away, uh, so we
1: could? Well, you know, I I I have talked to McConnell, but I can just uh, imagine uh, peripherally what he thinks and what's good for the country, what's good for the Republican party. It would be good for the Republican party if they could work together. But if they can't, um, the nature will decide the outcome.
2: I can't read. I can't read McConnell's mind. I can't read anybody's mind, but by watching what he's done and, and listening and watching what he might do, I think he wouldn't mind having Trump as an ally, but he doesn't like having him as a boss.
5: That's what I just said. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. I think I uh, think Bobby wrapped that up very succinctly. Yeah, he did. Uh, did. Governor Governor Andrew
1: politics.
5: Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, facing multiple allegations mm-hmm. of sexual harassment and unwanted advances, is now the subject of an impeachment investigation. After the Speaker of the New York State Assembly authorized the Judiciary Committee to begin the probe this week. While Cuomo has apologized for, quote, making anyone feel uncomfortable, unquote, the Democrat has maintained that he, quote, never touched anyone inappropriately, unquote. Uh, When pressed on whether he would resign the office, as many top New York Democrats are now calling on him to do, the governor has blatantly said he will not heed those calls. The impeachment investigation is running in parallel with the New York Attorney General Letitia James's independent civil inquiry into the allegations against the governor, which Cuomo has said he will participate in fully. Does Governor Cuomo have enough political capital to survive his cascading problems? No.
4: No. I don't think no. so.
2: No. <laughs> no. You know, and one of the things I learned years ago is assault. In most law, in most state levels, is unwanted touching. It's an assault. and. It, I don't care how he touched anybody, appropriately or inappropriately, If it was unwanted, technically under the law, he could be charged with assault. And I'm not saying he assaulted anybody, but it seems yeah. that the evidence is building that he may
1: have. Yeah, that's the that's the uh, tenor that the country's in right now, and we will probably move through it so that we can we can communicate again openly.
4: You know, the only ironic thing about all this is that, uh, in, again, in a very strange way, Donald Trump survived all these things in his own way. But I don't think Cuomo is likely to. Well, you the know, Republicans
2: I, are not quite as hard on their on their guys as the Democrats are. Yeah, Our exactly. Expectations are pretty high. Yeah, we we really don't tolerate that kind. Especially you know, that's an interesting
5: point because you would think that Republicans would smell blood in the water. You know, around uh, Andrew Cuomo, they don't seem to be piling on him at all no. about this. They don't
2: need to. The Democrats are doing it. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: and that's what you, your party should clean itself up if it has a problem. If it can, if not, then <laughs> oh Henry, then, okay. then, <laughs> I'm going to give you the crown of irony for that one. If, if, You know, um, and I and I think. Uh, Everybody would be pleased if the party itself, without, um, uh, without being eternally critical of its own people and uh, dropping their uh, guard uh, for protecting uh, the uh, rights and the um, – hang on for a second uh. – I, but I do think that the Republican Party should clean up its own act if it's got something going on that the people does not um, that the people does not accept as standards. Uh, so, and I think the Democrat Party should do the same thing. We should have I to be the, all cautious about that.
2: I think not the problem not to simply
1: is, blame the other party for uh, mismanagement.
2: The Democratic Party stands for. Diversity, and they stand up for women, and they stand for women's choice, and all of the things that the Democratic Party stands for. We cannot, if we want to be honest to our to our principles and our values, tolerate misogyny or racism or any of the other things. Oh, but that, you do. Everybody does. But we cannot. Yeah, that's do a that. ble- that's
1: a general statement that nobody should ever make. But, but well, I can make because it, you're unbelievable. I'm it. But, but I'm it. unbelievable.
5: But again, no, that goes it. back well, to a could. couple you things.
1: Can make it. I accept it.
5: But um, it's unbelievable. Going back to a couple things uh, that have been mentioned along the way in today's show, um, one is the the notion of uh, academic discussions talking about, you know, is pointing out the difference between the way things should be and the way they are. And, and the other is. Um, well, I lost my train of thought on that, but uh, I'm sorry. No, 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 Are you no problem. About your own <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do want to try and squeeze one more in if I can in the next three and a half minutes. The uh, former governor of Virginia, four years removed from the end of his first term, is vying for another shot at leading the Commonwealth, running as the closest thing to an incumbent in a place that bars governors from serving successive terms. Uh, Terry McAuliffe enters the race as the clear front runner, buoyed by a significant fundraising advantage, a who's who list of endorsements, and near total name recognition. But both Democratic politics uh, and Virginia have changed since McAuliffe's successful 2013 run, a shift exemplified by the Democratic legislature, which went blue in 2019 with McAuliffe's help moving to abolish the death penalty, uh, tighten gun laws, and reckon with the legacy of the Confederacy in a commonwealth closely tied to the Civil War South. With less than three months until the Democratic gubernatorial primary, McAuliffe, who faced no primary challenge eight years ago, is now being pushed by younger, more liberal challengers to explain how a uh, leader synonymous with the political establishment reflects the future of the Commonwealth and not the politics of a bygone era. Can McAuliffe rebrand himself in a significant way?
2: When I hear his name, I automatically think of the Clintons.
5: I do, too. Yeah, yeah,
4: exactly. That's that era. And I'm not so sure. I mean, that reflects on the divisions within the Democratic Party as well. And the new direction that that part, the Democrats are taking. So I, I mean, again, the name recognition and the money is going to mean an awful lot in any state in any race. But uh, depending yeah. on who the challengers are. But uh, just
5: just it's, it's when we going to be a catwalk. But Paul, just when we start to think that there's a, a big generational shift going on within the Democratic Party, Joe Biden gets elected.
4: That's right. That's true.
5: That's <laughs> you true. know, it it's yeah. it, it's it's kind of funny. Again, that's one of those, you know, how things should be and how they really are yeah. kinds of things. Um anyway, yeah. we, we have a, a break coming up here in uh, in about a minute and uh then we're going to come back with one of my favorite parts of armchair politics, uh, the uh the X-files. And today in honor of uh St. Paddy's Day, we're um going to have the booze and brats edition of the (laughs) (laughs) X-Files. And you'll see what I mean by that after we uh, take a short break. If you're listening to us on uh, WFOV, Our Voices Radio and Flint 92.1 LP-FM, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend uh, uh, Paul Herring. Uh, We're going to let them squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. Uh, If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And don't forget, you can always uh, check out the archives on our website for past episodes or or interviews, uh, perhaps, that you missed. And be sure not to miss the one with... um, Hey. Well, the one coming <laughs> this up tomorrow is
2: the Unknown Comic.
5: And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner show right now. And now, and now too, and even now.
7: Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too.
5: Joe Biden from the Blue Lions.
2: Dan Thurling.
3: Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondra. Actor,
0: comedian Jonah Podi, Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow.
5: State Senator Jim Annen. Comedian Brian McCree. The
0: unknown comic.
6: Mark Farner.
5: And Tom, I want you to know, Tom's
6: my
4: friend. You you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that.
5: Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview. Always, you you. It's <laughs> like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from nine to twelve right here on ninety two point one of a kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. welcome back everybody as we uh, roll into the final segment of today's uh, edition of armchair politics and the Tom Sumner program we uh, turn our attention to the X files those uh, weird and wacky stories that um, are hard to believe but are in fact true and sometimes difficult to distinguish from the everyday headlines (laughs) Um, I promised uh, before the break that um, This would be the booze and brats edition in honor of St. Patrick's Day, and so we begin. A California brewery broke a Guinness World Record when they used a catapult to launch a keg a distance of 438 feet. (laughs) The the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company said it took on the Guinness Record for the farthest distance thrown by a type of catapult that features an extra-long arm, and they selected a, quote, big little thing, keg, to comply with the uh, record's requirement that the projectile weigh at least 44 pounds. Uh, they are not full of any beer, said Terence Sullivan, brand manager and official lever puller, um, we didn't want to sacrifice any beer. Beer is for drinking, so we loaded them up with water. Officials <laughs> said the company wanted to do something big to celebrate the release of the Big Little Thing IPA. Um, does this remind us that beer containers should be empty of beer before being tossed? <laughs> yes, yes. Good
4: <laughs>
2: advice. Yes. Very good <laughs> advice. I go, hey, at least we yeah, didn't waste point. the beer. You know, in Lewis, Delaware, every year they have a pumpkin chunk in to see who can throw a pumpkin the furthest.
5: (laughs) Well, a pair of alumni and a student from Virginia's University of Mary Washington are attempting to obtain, again, a Guinness World Record for brewing the world's spiciest beer. Ray Parrish, who obtained his degree in physics from the university in 1991, is now co-owner of the Maltese Brewing Company in Fredericksburg, which produces Single One 2.0 beer, a pineapple IPA infused with 500 Carolina Reaper chilies. Parrish Parish said he discovered Guinness World Records does not currently have a record for the world's spiciest beer, so he decided to originate the record by measuring Signal 1 2.0's heat, but he needed help. The brewer reached out to Sarah Smith, a 2012 graduate who is now a visiting professor in UMW's Department of Chemistry and Physics. Smith brought junior biochemistry major Valerie Abenki onto the team. The trio said they are using the Scoville Heat Index, a unit of measurement that calculates chili heat, and attempting to determine the brew's concentration of heat inducing chemicals. Um, The researchers said their findings will be submitted to Guinness in mid-March and they expect to hear within a few months whether Signal 1 2.0 is indeed the world's spiciest beer. Mm. Is spicy. Is spicy hot really the way to enjoy a cold beer?
2: I don't think so, Good idea. Of... I, I was thinking while you were reading that about eating a bowl of fiber-learn chili and washing it down with spicy beer. Ooh. I, I don't think so. <laughs> Pineapple-flavored
4: beer does not sound like the thing I'm, I'm looking forward to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sounds painful to me. Yeah.
5: Yeah, that's... um. I don't know, that just seems like throwing fuel on the fire.
2: <laughs> yeah, you I wouldn't know.
5: Well, a woman has shared a recipe for a tasty alcohol cocktail that people are saying is perfect for summer barbecues. Um, Evan shared the recipe for an alcoholic salero slushy and it's uh, gone down a treat on TikTok. In a video that has been viewed more than 65,000 times, Evan who's known as uh, at Evan MacIntosh, demonstrates how to make the drink in just a few simple steps. She starts by chopping a Solero ice cream into small pieces. To a blender she adds the chopped up Solero, ice, frozen mango, Russian standard vodka, passion fruit Malibu and passion flavored Rubicon she then blends it until it's smooth and thick. After slicing a passion fruit in half, she pours the mixture into the glasses. Now it's ready to serve and enjoy. Can you ever imagine that ice cream and mango would go well with Russian vodka?
2: Mm, I don't know. It depends
1: on how much you need to drink.
2: <laughs> Maybe you have the yeah. vodka first. Yeah, I think I mixed a a Russian vodka with a peach liqueur once, and I had a really bad hangover, but uh, I don't
5: know. (laughs) Well, serves you right, I suppose. I think so. Well, German police say they have solved a nine-year-old burglary after DNA found on a half-eaten piece of sausage matched that of a man detained in France over an unrelated crime. Police in the western town of Schwelm said Thursday that the sausage belonged to the victim and the suspect, a 30-year-old Albanian citizen, appeared to have helped himself to a bite during the March 2012 break-in. It wasn't clear what type of sausage, known in Germany as worst, uh, the burglar had nibbled, though police said it was a hard variety investigators were recently alerted that French police had taken a uh, matching DNA sample from a man involved in a violent crime but Schwalm police said the suspect remains free and in the worst case he may escape punishment the statute of limitations on the burglary has expired meaning he will likely not be extradited to Germany what self-respecting German Burglar or Albanian burglar, for that matter, would leave behind a half-eaten sausage. <laughs>
4: yes, you're, gonna, no. you're gonna at least steal the sausage, while you're, while you're stealing yeah. the other stuff. Well, yeah.
2: <laughs> That's what I'm. Maybe talking. he had maybe he had reflex. <laughs> maybe. <yeah. laughs> <sighs> maybe it was one
4: of those two spicy sausages. that was breaking the Guinness Book of Records. I don't know. Yeah, right. He <laughs> didn't take a second bite. Oh, he was drinking a
5: spicy beer while he was eating the sausage. Right, right. Well, that wraps up today's edition of uh, Armchair Politics and uh, and the X-Files. I do want to uh, thank... all of the participate, all the participants in uh, today's roundtable, our roundtable regulars, uh, Paul Rosicki on the left. Paul, it's always great to have you. Uh, always great along to be here. Great,
4: great to have both Henry and Bobby to talk to again.
5: And uh, Henry, it's always a pleasure to have you uh, part of our weekly roundtable.
1: And I, I, I know that, and I know that you guys really give me great respect that I don't even earn, and I you. <laughs> Bobby clayton Walton for being a great peer of mine. Uh, I think she means the best, and she uh, does exactly what she's supposed to do: is defend the tenets of the Democratic Party.
2: Oh no, actually, uh, Henry, I defend the tenets of the values that I hold, okay. and some okay. of those coincide with the Democratic Party. I and would and say, we, however, and I would
1: not want to live in a world without the Democrats.
2: Good. I I would say, Henry, that I think um, that the Tom Sumner Show is one of the most educational (laughs) programs in this area and that we need to get uh, that word out because I learn more from being on the show with you guys and also from listening to some of Tom's interviews. They're really, really good. Yep, really, well, really, I uh,
5: agree with you 100%. I'm supposed to be thanking you guys for participating in the <laughs> show today. Um, but thank you for those uh, for those kind words. And, and of course, this music we're hearing in the background um, is, is really kind of fun in honor of uh, St. Patrick's Day, as today is. Um, a little different one than, than years gone by, but uh, we went through some of that last year. But hopefully by next St. Patrick's Day... We'll, we'll be out somewhere <laughs> doing yeah, this. Uh,
4: that'd be a great idea.
5: Yeah, doing yeah. this as a remote. The music that we're listening to to sign off with um, was played by the Kaiser family from uh, Lapeer, and that's from a live performance on the Tom Sumner program, actually. Cool. From years ago. Anyway, uh, this is Smoke and George Winters, Tickling the Ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the... Uh, living room until uh, tomorrow when I come back with another edition of the uh, Tom Sumner program and tomorrow if I can find my notes here it is um, my guest is uh, the CEO pay expert from Institute for Policy Studies Uh, Sarah Anderson is one of the guests uh, that will be on the show tomorrow so be sure and uh, tune in for that in the meantime good night everybody